Well, good morning, church. It's great to be able to celebrate this uh, amazing text with you that my brother Ken just read, uh, John 3.16. Uh, this is arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, and I would say for good reason. I, I remember when I was in college, um, walking into a, a dorm and seeing, or a dorm lounge and seeing Billy Ray Cyrus on the TV set, dancing around, singing the song, Achy Breaky Heart. Anybody remember that song? It was, it was kind of a big thing that fairly, that passed quickly enough. Um, but I remember he was wearing a t-shirt, or maybe it was a sweatshirt, that, that said John 3.16 on it. And of course, uh, more of you probably know that Tim Tebow used to put that on his eyeshadow before he would play games at, at Florida. And he believed it. Like he, he was all about, he wanted, he, when people looked at him, he wanted them to, to hear this verse. Well, Martin Luther uh, quoted or is quoted for saying that, that John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. There it is in one verse. And so we're going to spend our time this morning looking at this verse. And oftentimes I think when we look at this verse, we, we think of the big words of John 3.16. And, and uh, let's go ahead and put that up on the, on the, on the screen if we can. Um, and, and when we look at this verse, we, we think of words like God and, and loved. And, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But we think about the world and, and how he gave uh, his son. Who is, who is the son? Um, and, and the response, we think of that word believe. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit too. And you see the word perish. Not perish, but eternal life. And so these words are important, and we will discuss them. But this morning, I want us to think about the little words. You know, little words are, as, are important as well. So we're going to structure our message around three little words that hold John 3.16 together. And I, I hope they will better help us understand this verse that Elder Ken read for us. The three words are, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So let's start with, with little word number one, which is for. Maybe, maybe you think, well, what, what does that mean? What, how does that help me? Well, for is a conjunction that ties this verse to the verses that precede it. It links John 3.16 to verses 9 through 15. And these verses tell us that that Jesus came from heaven on a mission to save us. So remember, when when you read John 3.16, that the first person, the first human being to hear that verse, that famous verse, was Nicodemus. And and last week we, we looked at this conversation, the beginning of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus had told Nicodemus that, that nobody is going to enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I, I posited last week that Nicodemus actually understood what Jesus was talking about, and that's often misunderstood. If you, if you just take kind of a cursory reading of the text, um, he would have been a brilliant man who was familiar, very familiar with the Old Testament, and would have understood what Jesus was saying, and they were kind of having a, a head-to-head theological discussion together using some metaphor. But Nicodemus says here in verse 9, how can these things be? 
Now, I don't think that this was a statement of disbelief. That there may have been a little bit of incredulity going on, like, you know, Nicodemus's mind is being blown. He, he's, 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 he's being transformed from thinking that, that, that he could earn God's favor by perfectly or nearly perfectly keeping God's law to Jesus saying, no, <laughs> you're, you're not even there yet, Nicodemus, uh, unless a man is, is born again with a, through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerating the heart, the baptism of the Spirit. Unless that happens, you'll, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so, so when he says, how could these things be? I would suggest to you this morning that, that what he's saying is, how can this be for me? In other words, how does all this work in real life? How, how can this new spiritual birth that you're talking about actually happen? And so Jesus answers Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not yet understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we, we speak, that's kind of interesting. Jesus says we, I think that's a Trinitarian reference. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, and that you in Greek is plural. Okay, understand that. But you do not receive our testimony. In other words, I think he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders who, unlike the others at the feast who had seen the miracles of Jesus, were already viewing him with suspicion because he was going to erode their power, and they were already looking at him with disbelief. And of course, Nicodemus is a shining ex- uh, exception to that. Okay, so I think here Jesus means not you, Nicodemus, necessarily, but you guys, you religious leaders who are supposed to shepherd my people, are um, not receiving our testimony. And so Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, you have much to learn, uh, you great teacher. Of the, of the law. And so then he drops the bomb on Nicodemus in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, to Nicodemus, this would have packed a powerful punch, stronger than it, than it does to us because Jesus is saying here, I have been to heaven. I am the Son of Man. And maybe you, you read that term, we see this a lot in John, we see this a lot in, in, in Luke and in Matthew, where Jesus uses this term, son of man, to talk about himself. And maybe, again, if you're just kind of reading through, maybe you think, well, yeah, he's talking about his humanity here. And while that may be true, what Jesus was referencing is a passage in Daniel that Nicodemus was very familiar with, that was a messianic prophecy. And it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Kind of vision of this this divine being that looked human. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this, this son of man is, is no simple homo sapien. This is a reference, a prophecy of the very God-man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I am he. So you need to understand, Nicodemus' mind is being blown apart. It's being expanded. 
And then Jesus points to a story from Israel's earthly history that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. And that is Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. And so Jesus says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There is so much in those two little verses. The the gospel, uh, uh, saving faith, looking to Jesus in faith, a prophecy of his being lifted up, in his crucifixion in about three years' time. But here he refers back to a a story, a very interesting story, actually, in in Numbers. And when you read Numbers, it's like you see this, like, repeat, like almost like Groundhog Day, all right? You see see that the the, the children of Israel rebel or complain against God. God sends some kind of, of, of judgment on them. Then they repent and then, like, repeat, right? And so... Here we see that again in in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, starting there. And we have the words on the screen, or if you like, I I invite you to turn there in your your Bible. But we read, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. By the way, they're talking about the manna that God was providing for them, right? Bread from heaven. So that, that's, if, that's an insult to God. You, you know, kids or moms, if, you, if your kids ever like insulted your food, you don't like that, right? You're cooking. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And uh, some scholars think this term fiery serpents is a reference to a, a fever that would have uh, 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 set on after being bitten by these, these uh, snakes. So many were di- had died or were dying, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And, and you might think, okay, the Lord would have relented and, 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 you know, immediately the serpents would have all gone away or something. But here's what happened. Here's what God did. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, that might not be the way we would do it, right? Uh, we might, uh, uh, hey, what, you know, what's the secret sauce for the right, in, you know, anti-venom we need? Or, you know, maybe we, we, we you know, we get a big, um, you know, posse together and, a, you know, create a society for destroying snakes, you know, train some snake killers and let's go take care of business. But God says, I want you to make a big serpent out of, you know, on a pole, and so, uh, instead of taking one of the dead serpents, Moses actually fashioned it out of bronze, which would have taken some time. And he lifted it up on a pole, and all who looked on the bronze serpent would live. Even if they were dying from a snake bite, if they would just turn and look at that pole, an, an act of faith, they would live. Now you may wonder, why did God tell Moses to put a serpent on a pole? I mean, we get here as Jesus talks about this illusion that this this points to him being lifted up. Why, why a snake? 
Well, what do snakes represent in the Bible? Evil? Sin? Certainly sin. Remember, Satan appeared as a snake in the garden. May have been a, uh, a more beautiful snake. Um, it could talk. And to tempt Eve, and, and we kind of see throughout Scripture, and I, I, it's even kind of worked into our own, um, uh, our own culture, this idea of, of snakes being kind of evil, bad, dangerous, all right? I mean, maybe one of you have had a pet snake. I'm not knocking that. My, my wife's brother brought a big um, boa, had a python, and, and uh, brought it, I remember, home uh, for Christmas, the same year that we brought a puppy down, and her mom, it, the snake didn't kill the puppy, don't worry. Uh, somebody looked at me concern-wise. But what was funny, the, the dog wasn't allowed in the house, right? Because Beth's mom grew up on a farm. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the, somehow he didn't even ask her about the snake. So he just brought it in and it, it actually got into the sofa. And uh, for a couple days, it was in the sofa. <laughs> so maybe you've had a pet snake and maybe uh, you're like, hey, don't knock snakes. But actually in the Bible, we see serpents and snakes as a reference point in our mind for sin or danger or evil, all right? Well, remember this. When Jesus died on the cross, what was he dying for? He was dying for our sins, right? Our, our wickedness. He was atoning for our wickedness. In fact, the Bible says that for three hours while he hung on that cross, in, in God's eyes, he's, he represented our wickedness. Uh, he became our sin that was laid on him, and that's why God's wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross. Why he was able to purchase our forgiveness, our atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes so far as to say, for our sake he made him, that's God made Jesus, who knew no sin, the only perfect man, so that in him, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed two important words here. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So when Jesus was hanging on that cross, for those three hours that darkness covered the face of the earth, to God, Jesus became, to God the Father, Jesus became sin itself. The serpent on the pole. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might truly become the righteousness of God. And I want you to stop and think about that latter part. Um, you may be sitting here this morning. There may be some guilt in your heart for a sin long ago or maybe last week. You may think, how can God really accept me? Because of Christ. If you really believe in, in him, if your faith is in him. Because of Christ, God gives you the gift of his righteousness. So God delights in you, brothers and sisters. What a, what a great point we see here. Well, our, our next little word, uh, little word number two is so. Right? For God so loved the world. So four connects this to the context, this conversation with Nicodemus, the, the story in the Old Covenant where the, 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 the serpent on the pole, anyone who looked at that serpent was saved physically. Their life was saved. A, a picture for us of salvation. And Jesus already has said to Nicodemus that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That whoever, I'm sorry, he said that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus has already summarized the response to the gospel. That is faith. 
But now he says to him, this, this very verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So when you hear the word so, what do you think of? Well, oftentimes I think we, we, we think of extent, right? How, how much do I love you? I love you so much, right? My, my, I think maybe my favorite book is a children's book, uh, after the Bible, of course. Um, I, I used to read this to my daughter. Uh, I've read it to both of my daughters, actually. Maybe even my son. I don't remember, Tim. Sorry if I left you out. I think I read it to you. But it was kind of like a book for a dad to read to his son or his daughter, you know. And it, it's called Guess How Much I Love You. Maybe some of you have read that. You know, it's about big nut brown hair, little nut brown hair. And that was actually Grace's nickname when she was a little. It was little nut brown hair. And I used to read that. And it's about, you know, they're both comparing and they're like having this contest for who can describe how much they love the other the most. You know, I love you all the way down to the mailbox. You know, I love you all the way up to the moon. You know, and then finally, you know, this, this big, you know, there was a lot of stuff in between. And finally, little nut brown hair falls asleep in big nut brown hair's arms. And big nut brown hair lets little nut brown hair win. And then he says, and back. And I love that story. I loved reading it to my daughters. Um, so, so here could mean how much does God love us? How much does God love the world? But actually, after looking at this a little more carefully in the original language, I think that it means not extent, but manner. What manner or way did God love the world? Well, what we see here is that God truly loved the world, and not just the, the Greek word for world is cosmos, right? So not just the, the big hunk of rock and all the ecosystems on it, but all the, the people who live on it, all these nations and tribes and peoples and kinds of people and cultures. God so loved the world such that he gave his only son. He, he sacrificed his only son for us. That's the manner in which God loved the world. And that is what Romans chapter 5 verse 8 articulates. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that for a moment. Um, church, I, I don't say it enough, but I do, I, I, I'm thankful to be your pastor. And, and I love you. And I love praying for you. And I love being here with you. Um, and I think there could be a situation, I, I, I hope the Lord would give me the strength to, to do what I'm saying here, where I would give my life for one of you. But I don't know that I could give my son for you. I, I, I love my son, and I don't know that I could do that. But God did. He loves you that much that he gave his only begotten son for you. So how do you know that someone really loves you? I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Um, kids, how do you know that your mom and dad love you? Think about it. Anybody want to shout something out loud? Whoa, dude. Did you guys hear that? Good job, Aiden. Um, because they discipline us. Do, do they tell you this hurts me more than it hurts you? Did they ever say that to you? No. My mom used to say that to me. 
And I always kind of questioned that one, to be honest with you. But, but you know what? I knew, I knew she and I knew my dad loved me when they disciplined me. They loved me enough to do so. You know, right answer. Um, kids, don't go beat them up afterwards. All right. Um, but that that is true. How do you know that your mom and dad love for you? Is it primarily because they tell you? No, I don't think so, right? Or is it because they show you? Now, now I hope I, I'm all for moms and dads tell your kids you love them. Okay, it's a good thing. Um, but it's because they, they show you, right? My, my mom stayed up with me all night when I was throwing up. That's a demonstration of love. Did I hear an ooh? All right. Hearing that, I got to tell a story now. What I just said is actually true, but it was kind of my mom's fault. Okay. Um, have, you, have you ever heard of somophilin? Joshua, do they even use that anymore? I hope they've banned it by now. But that was for like cough, right? Kind of break it all up and help you. Well, my mom, I was a kid, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe 10, uh, a little bit sick, had a cough. Actually, I must have been sick enough to where my mom actually drove to the ER where my dad was working that night, okay, uh, at Lackland Air Force Base at Wilford Hall. Um, and, you know, he was, he was doing an all-nighter kind of shift in the, in, the, in the ER. And so she went and got this big brown bottle of somophilin. And all I can say is, that's some of the nastiest stuff. If I just smelled it, I'd probably you know, lose my, 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 you know, lose my cookies, okay? It was nasty, and, and so um, she missed, it was, mil, it was late, maybe 10 or 11 at night, and so she misread the bottle, and she gave me six times the dose. And so it did its job. I wasn't coughing, but I was throwing up all night. And you know what I remember? Um, I, don't, I don't think she told me in, until years later that that was actually her fault, but uh, you know, she misread the label. She, I mean, it was like spoon after spoon of this stuff. It was awful. This smallphone is awful, right? And, and, but she sat with me. I remember literally sleeping next to the toilet in the bathroom, and she stayed up with me all night. That's love. That's love. She actually not only did that, but when I would drive back to college, which was from here to Ohio, she would fast for me for 15 hours. And she would fast and pray that God would protect me. And, and sometimes I would get in at midnight or one in the morning and I'd crash and I'd be, you know, I'd forget to call her. And so the next morning early, I'd get a phone call. She'd say, look, I really want to eat. Are you there? Did you make it safely? We didn't have cell phones back then, right? And so later when I went overseas as a young missionary, she fasted and prayed one day a week for me. So that's love, right? It's sacrificial it's a demonstration of love. And of course, I'm talking about my mom. Um, I knew my dad loved me because he didn't have a whole lot of time, but he invested time in me. So some of you might say, I know my dad loves me because he, you know, he, he taught me how to throw a frisbee or a baseball. Um, he, he spends time. We do things together. I know he loves me. Well, many people say, I love you. But those words can be hollow. In fact, they can even be manipulative sometimes. If, 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 you're, if you're saying that to try to elicit a response that is for your own benefit, then that's manipulative. And, and let me just caution you here. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm going a little off script, but uh, young people, uh, teenagers, uh, be judicious with that term. Be careful. 
You might just want to tell your girlfriend you love her. Um, are you loving her? Is that, is that something you're saying so you can get your paws on her? That's not love. That's lust. All right? Uh, let's be careful that when we say I love you, we back it up with truth and reality like God did and Jesus did. Actions are more powerful than words. There's no greater place to see the picture of love than on the cross. Christ, the Son of God, fulfilling his mission to die for us in our place and God the Father giving his only Son to die in our place so that he may be just and holy but also forgiving at the same time. That's what Jesus did for us. That was the love of God. So I want to encourage you this morning and, and, and remind you, and maybe if there's one thing to remember out of this sermon, you know, remember the importance of conjunctions, okay, sure. But remember that God does love you. He really does love his creation. And you know what? Maybe, maybe there's a few Reformed Christians sitting in our midst, okay? I, I, I consider myself to be an optimistic Reformed fellow, all right? Maybe you're reformed and your favorite sermon of all times is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And it was a good sermon. But maybe you love that stuff, right? And, and maybe in your heart you struggle to really believe that God is a God of love. Well, he says it. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, let's say it together, God is love. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Bible? What he, this is his revelation. This is his disclosure of himself to you. God is love. Well, well maybe you're just a very conscientious person and you're just really aware of your sin. Maybe it's recent sin, maybe it's sin from long ago, and and maybe you have a hard time believing that God loves you because he's omniscient and he saw what you did, and he knows what you did. How could he love me? How could he really love me? Because I can't get rid of that spot in my conscience, in my memory. Believe the Bible. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be children of God. That we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, 1. He loves you. And he's able to love you because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If your faith is in him. If you believe that. He has given you Christ's righteousness. And he has has cleansed that spot. So you don't have to wallow in it anymore. God loves you. If you doubt that, look to the cross. Look to the cross. So that's the little word, so. Our final, little word, our final little word this morning is that. That. Now, now in Greek, it's, it's, it's called hina. Uh, hina. And it's, people sometimes call that a purpose clause. Right? It's a conjunction that shows purpose. And so it could be translated that or so that or for the purpose that. So I want us to consider the the latter part of John chapter uh, 3, verse 16. That 
whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, a, a more wooden translation, if you really wanted to go word for word exactly without massaging it, as all translations have to do to make it readable, uh, it would be, so that everyone believing in him not should perish, but should have life eternal. That's the actual wooden word-for-word translation there. So that everyone believing in him should not perish, but should have life eternal. And so this, this tells us that Jesus is the only hope of salvation for mankind. Now I want you to think back to the story of the snakes for a minute, okay? The Israelites were being bitten by fiery serpents, and they may have doubted the means, but all they had to do was gaze on the bronze serpent and they would be healed. And that was a look of faith. And, and their faith may have been weak. They may have had doubts even. But if they were looking in real faith, they were cured. Maybe you are sitting here this morning, and if you're honest, there are there, there's some doubts in your heart, whether it's about God's goodness or his love or the fact that Jesus truly can save that it's all real, that it's not just some construct. Maybe you have doubts, but the right response is still the gaze of faith. That word believe, pisteo, it comes from the root word faith. Pistis is the noun, faith, right? So whenever we see in, in, in our English Bibles, sadly in, in, our, in our modern use of language, that word um, believe has been um, dumbed down or, or maybe, maybe, you know, castrated even to where it can be intellectual. Like two plus two equals four. I believe that. Okay? But I don't faith that. And, and that's how we should use it. That The word in, in Greek is, is faith. And it's always faith. So whether you are putting your faith, noun, in Christ, or whether you're believing, it, it means the same thing. You are faithing in Christ, right? And so the best way I know to, to describe faith to you is to say to rest the weight of your soul in Christ. And maybe you struggle. Maybe you're like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay, just look to Jesus. Put that faith in him as those dying Israelites did, even if they thought this is crazy, but okay, I'll give that. I'm going to look over there with hope and with faith. Look to him. The Israelites were being saved from the consequences of venom, we are being saved from the consequences of our sin. Now in, this, in, the, in these few words in this text, let's not pass over the word perish. Let's not forget the word perished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have life eternal. We've got to talk about this word perish because we've got to know what we're being saved from. And it, it might be the bad news of the gospel, but the good news of the gospel isn't good news if you don't understand the bad news. You've got to know what you need to be saved from. And what it means, what Jesus means when he says perish, is an eternity in hell. And Jesus very clearly, on numerous occasions, warned about hell. In one place, uh, he talks about uh, the end of all, for all of us in Matthew 13, verse 
40, and he gave kind of an agricultural uh, illustration, but he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is not going to be a party. It is not going to be a place where anybody uh, communes in an enjoyable way with somebody else. It is going to be a place of separation from God. Um, It will be a place of eternal regret, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be a, a place of great pain. But Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus here in Matthew 13 contrasted eternal damnation with eternal life. And just as awful, and believe me, hell is worse than I can imagine, all right, heaven is far greater than we can imagine, but Jesus is talking about an eternal future in glory with God as our Father and Christ as our brother. Well, you may wonder, why did Jesus talk so much about hell? In fact, I, I actually had about five or six verses I was thinking about quoting, and I decided that'd just be a little too much this morning, um, all spoken verbatim by Jesus about hell. Why did he do this? Why did he talk about it? Well, it was to warn us. He doesn't want you to go to hell. And so we see in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so there are only two choices when we hear the gospel message. That is to believe or or to repent, or or, sorry, to believe or to reject. So, So sitting on the fence, like, ah, put it off, you know, I'll think about it later, that, that is rejection, okay? You either believe or reject when you hear the gospel message. Those are your only two options. And those who believe are saved from their sins. And those who reject are justly com- condemned for their sins against a holy God. So you believe or reject. And, and I want to join Jesus in encouraging you to believe. Even if you're struggling to believe, just look to the cross. Just look to the cross. He says, the words of Christ again, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Paul later summed all this up in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he, he, he wrote, for the wages of sin is death. That means the, the, the just deserts. The, the right wage, what you get, getting what you deserve for sin is death. And we might think, isn't that kind of an overreaction? Not, not treason towards a holy God, right? That's what we need to remember, the one that we have offended. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember that, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, Jesus continued with this, this statement, and he says, verse 19, and this is the judgment 
the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you are right now and you know it, living in darkness, maybe you're straddling both sides, right? You're coming to church, uh, maybe with your head you're, you're believing it somewhat, but you're, you're living a different way. Don't, don't continue to live in darkness. Don't keep hiding your heart from the, from, from, from the light like a cockroach. God sees all. So come to the light. Believe the gospel and be saved. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would believe the truth of the gospel in this one verse. The gospel in miniature, as our brother Martin Luther put it. May we believe that you are a holy God and our creator with ownership rights over us. Help us to understand that we have truly sinned against you and offended your holiness. And we are culpable for that. We are condemned for that. But Lord, we thank you. Help us believe that, that you sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That you loved the world and us so much that you would give your only son on a cross. That if we believe in him, we'll have life eternal. So Lord, help us believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. If there's anyone here who is sitting in darkness right now, I pray that you would illumine their hearts with your light so that they may simply bow before him, believe in him, and say that he is Lord and live for him. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.